This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. The Rise and Fall of Papacy by Robert Fleming, 171848 edition, as read by Samantha Elosais. Tape 5. We come therefore now in the second place to consider the testimony of Epiphanius, upon whose credit alone Grotius and Hammond believe that John was in Patmos in Claudius' time. And here, by the way, I cannot forbear to observe the strange mistake of Dr. Lightfoot, who agrees in the main with these learned men in interpreting the revelation in relation to the Jews before the destruction of Jerusalem and therefore makes John to see these visions long before that, but has this peculiar to himself, that he imagines John was not banished there, but went thither voluntarily to preach the gospel to the inhabitants, whereas John himself doth expressly tell us that he was there as a sufferer and witness for Christ. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1, verse 9. So that as this refutes Dr. Lightfoot, and confirms what Grotius and Hammond agree in, that John was not in Patmos as a traveler, but as a prisoner and sufferer, so it is enough to refute even them also. For the words do plainly insinuate that John was not the only persecuted man at this time, but that there was then a persecution raised against all Christians in general. And therefore we may be assured that he was not in that island in the days of Claudius, in whose time we have proved there was no persecution. But to return, Epiphanius says indeed that John saw his visions in Patmos in the reign of Claudius. But can his single authority weigh down all antiquity that says the contrary? Shall we believe him rather than Irenaeus, who lived two hundred years before him and was the scholar of Polycarp, the scholar of John himself? Now what can be plainer than the words of Irenaeus, as they are preserved in the original by Eusebius? Translation would read, If his name, that is, that of Antichrist or the Beast, had been openly to be divulged at this time, it would no doubt have been told by him that saw the apocalyptical visions. For it is not a long time since he saw these, but even in some sense in our own time, that is, towards the end of the reign of Domitian. End of quote. And that Irenaeus had just reason to say that John seeing the revelation was almost in his own time, or within the memory of the men of that generation, if not his own also, is plain from chronology. For he, being the scholar of Polycarp, who was martyred in the year of Christ 167, and being himself put to death in the year 202, if we suppose that he wrote this but ten or twelve years before his death, yet he might justly say that there was about an age difference from his time and that wherein John saw the revelation. For if John was in Patmos during the, towards the end of Domitian's reign, It could not be sooner, in any propriety of speech, than the year 90, seeing he began his government in the year 81 and died 96. 
And who can doubt, but Irenaeus does deliver here what his master Parlycarp had told him. For as none knew the history of John better than that worthy person, so none had better opportunity to know what related to this matter than Irenaeus, by reason of his long and intimate acquaintance with him. This seemed a foundation sure enough of old to Eusebius, and if some men had private ends to promote by opposing it, might be a sufficient foundation to all men still. Let us therefore hear what this learned historian says on this head. In those days, says Eusebius, that is, in the days of Serdo, Ignatius, and Simeon, of whom he had been speaking, the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, was yet alive, inspecting the churches of Asia, having returned after Domitian's death from the island whither he had been banished. Now that John was then alive is enough to adduce the testimony of two persons of great authority, who are worthy of all belief and were ever eminent for defending the truth. I mean Irenaeus and Clemens Alexandrinus, the first of whom, in his second book against heresies, speaks thus. All the presbyters, says Irenaeus, who live familiarly with the Apostle John in Asia, do assure us that they had this related to them from John himself for he lived with them even unto the times of Trajan. In his third book also, Irenaeus gives us the same account in these words, quote, The church of Ephesus also, which was founded by the Apostle Paul, and was afterwards under the care of the Apostle John, until Trajan's time, is an eminent witness of what was delivered to us by the Apostle. End of quote. And besides him, Clemens likewise, says Eusebius, does not only take notice at the, ta- at the same time, but gives a particular story relating to him in that book of his, which bears this title, What Rich Man Can Be Saved. And then Eusebius recites the story at length, which is too long to insert here. Now if John lived to the days of Trajan, he must have been a prodigiously old man according to Epiphanius, who says he was ninety years of age in Claudius's time. For giving him all the allowance that can be desired, namely that John was so old in the last year of Claudius, and that he died in the first year of Trajan, he must have been one hundred and thirty-four years old at least when he died, seeing Claudius died in A.D. 54, and Trajan did not begin to reign until the year 98, though others say with more probability not until A.D. 100. Now, besides that it is not easy to believe that so thoughtful and laborious a man should live so long, the improbability of what Epiphanius says appears further from this, that if in the year 54 from Christ's birth, John was 90 years of age, he must have been 36 years older than Christ. And if so, it seems very odd that Christ should say to him from the cross, Man, behold thy mother, and to Mary, Woman, behold thy son. John 19, verses 26 and 27. For as this seems to say that he was at least as young as Christ, this account makes him an old man of near seventy years of age at that time, which, as it must suppose Mary to be a very aged person of between eighty and ninety at least, so it contradicts the constant and unanimous tradition of the Church, which supposes him to be very young at the time. Whence Baronius says that he was but twenty-five years old, and Nicephorus relates out of an epistle of Evodius, bishop of Antioch, that the virgin herself was not then fifty, seeing Christ, as he asserts, was born when she was but fifteen years old. Whence it appears how little we ought to trust Epiphanius in opposition to all antiquity besides, which made Drusus say, Latin phrase, and upon the same account Petavius scruples not to correct him, for where he has it imparente Claudio, he writes this short note in the margin, Mendoce pro Domitiano. But the truth is, though I am not willing to detract from this author's credit, yet I suspect it was not so much an error of judgment as of will, or that which some call a pia fraus, that made him desert the tradition of the church in this matter. 
for his telling us this story is upon the occasion of an objection of the Montanists against the Apocalypse, taken from this supposition, that there was no church in Thyatira when John wrote the Revelation, which it seems he thought would serve another turn if he inverted it by telling them that John said so only by way of prophecy. Whence he proceeds to prove the verity and divinity of the book, and therefore thought his argument would be the more cogent the further he ran up the date of the revelation and John's being in Patmos. But as this was as poor as well as unlawful shift, so I shall leave him and his authority both to those who have more time and leisure to consider them further. There is proof enough from the revelation itself to assure us that it was written in Domitian's time, for it is plain not only from Revelation 1.9, which I touched upon before, but from the strain of all the seven epistles which John writes to the churches of Asia, that at the time of his being in Patmos, or rather before, there had been a severe persecution upon them. Therefore he tells the church of Ephesus that she had labored and endured, and had not fainted under the troubles that had come upon her. Revelation 2 verse 2 And so the Christians of Smyrna are told of their tribulation and exhorted not to fear imprisonment or any other thing that they should suffer. Revelation 2 verse 9 and 10 This being added, that they must expect tribulation for ten days, which, by the way, is no inconsiderable hint, seeing the persecution of Domitian from the first beginning of it lasted about ten years, which, in the dialect of St. John, are called days. I might mention many other things, but this is plain, that the church was under persecution everywhere at that time, if it were only from these and the like expressions, Be thou faithful unto the death, and To him that overcometh will I do so and so. And besides all these things, mention is made of an eminent martyr of the church of Pergamos, Revelation 2 verse 13, whose name was Antipas. For the Apostle John, or rather Christ, is so expressed in relating this, that we may deny anything in the Bible if we deny this matter of fact. I am not concerned here with the allegories some fanciful men make upon this name, when they tell us that it signifies as much as Antipater or Antipapa, nor have I anything to do with the stories that later authors tell us of him, as of his being Bishop of Pergamos, and of his being burnt in a brazen bull, and other circumstantial matters relating to his person or death. Let Aretha, therefore, Metaphrastus, Sidrenus, Pererius, Surius, Baronius, Cornelius, Alapide, and a thousand more be supposed to mistake in their relating this story, yet no man shall ever make me disbelieve what St. John says of this matter. And I must have further proof than ever I expect to receive before I can believe that all these authors are mistaken as to the foundation of their relation, when they unanimously tells us that this, tell us that this martyr suffered in the reign of Domitian. And now I suppose I have said enough to prove that John was not in Patmos before the reign of Domitian, and if so, the foundation of Grotius and his followers falls to the ground, so that these corollaries must naturally follow from what has been said and remain as certain truths. First corollary. The visions of the Apocalypse relate neither to the Romish nor Jewish state before the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus. Second corollary. The revelation relates to the church and her adversaries as to those things that were to fall out after the eversion of the Jewish Jewish state. Now, before I proceed, I must desire the reader to observe the distribution which Christ himself makes of the subjects treated of in this book when he commands John, saying, Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Revelation 1 verse 19 Where it is plain three things are distinguished. First, the things which John had seen, namely, the emblems, figures, or hieroglyphical representations that had been objected to his eyes or imagination. 
Revelation 1, verse 12 through 19. Then second, the things which were existent and in being at the time when John was in Patmos, that is, the churches planted by the apostles, particularly the seven Asiatic ones, to which John had a peculiar relation and to which he was ordered to direct seven epistles. And then third, the things which were to fall out hereafter, namely the prophetical part of the book, beginning with the fourth chapter, as is plain from the first verse thereof, where after John had written what related to both the former heads, he tells us that he heard a voice, like the voice of a trumpet, talking with him, and commanding him now to begin and write the things which he was to show him, and represent to him emblematically, which were to be Greek words, after the expiration of the other things mentioned before, which were then said then to exist, namely the then present circumstances of the Asiatic churches. So that this is a sufficient answer to those that object that this book cannot be supposed to contain a prophecy of the state of the church for any long time, seeing it is said that the things prophesied of in the Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, must shortly come to pass. For seeing we have a double explication of this expression, that is, Revelation 1, verse 19, and chapter 4, verse 1, I ask whether we are to stick so to the letter of the first short proposition as to reject the explication given of it in the following places. It was very proper indeed when some things in this book did concern the then present state of the church and some other things that did relate to the future condition of it to say as in Revelation 1.1 that the prophecy related to things that were shortly to come to pass because not only were those things to be soon fulfilled that concerned the churches of Asia at that time, but the other things were then also to enter upon their begun accomplishment. But that we might not imagine that the whole of this book was to be accomplished shortly, we are told, Revelation 1.19 and Revelation 4.1, that what related to future time was to be accomplished and fall out afterwards, and that accordingly, we might see the full extent of this prophecy, we are led down from scene to scene till we are brought to the end and consummation of all things at last. And now seeing we have proved that this book was written for after the destruction of Jerusalem, we must desire our, our antagonists to find out something else to which they can accommodate all the figures of the revelation before we quit our interpretation, merely because they dislike it though they can offer us nothing in the room of the same. Able to enlighten our minds with another scheme than that of Grotius, which we have sufficiently, though briefly, refuted, I must be bold to lay down this further corollary, which is the same with our first postulatum in the preceding discourse. Third corollary, that the revelation contains the series of all the remarkable events and changes of the state of the Christian church to the end of the world. And the distribution of this book into the three parts I have mentioned lays a sufficient foundation for another proposition also. Third proposition. The seven epistles directed to as many churches in the Lesser Asia do not immediately relate to the Christian church in general and therefore cannot be interpreted prophetically in any proper sense, as if they did denote so many periods of time in relation to it. I might demonstrate this were it needful, but seeing it makes nothing for my design which way soever men understand it, I shall say nothing to it now, especially because the learned Witsius, my professor and master formerly, has sufficiently demonstrated what I assert in this proposition, in his Diatribe Deceptum Apostolarum Apocalypticarum Sensu Historico et Prophetico, published in his Miscellanae Sacra. And neither have I time to prove other propositions that might appear more necessary, only seeing the key of interpreting the Apocalypse which the angel gives John, Revelation 17, is so very plain. I build another proposition upon it. Fourth proposition. Babylon the Great, or the apocalyptical beast, taken in a general sense, as it, represent, as it is represented with its seven heads and ten horns, 
is no other than an emblem of the Roman Empire. For besides that, Dr. Cressener and others have proved this, the text itself is demonstration enough to all those that will be at pains attentively and impartially to consider it. For seeing the angel does expressly say that, this, that by this was meant the seven-hilled city, Revelation 17, verse 9, and the city that then did reign over the kings of the earth, verse 18, I cannot imagine what he could have said more plainly upon this head. But seeing he represents the empire under the peculiar consideration of its being governed by a woman who is called the great whore or adulteress, therefore this lays the foundation for another proposition. Fifth proposition. The seven-headed beast, more especially considered as it is represented as rid upon by the whore, doth represent Rome to us as it is under the ecclesiastical government of the papacy, or apostate church of Rome. This the angel does sufficiently insinuate, in Revelation 17 verse 8, when he says, The beast which thou sawest was, and yet is not at this time. That is, the beast which thou sawest is indeed the same Roman Empire which was before, and was represented to thee. Revelation 13 verse 1 But is not yet in another sense, that is, as thou now beholdest it under the rule of a whore or the apostate church of Rome. For this last ecclesiastical form of government is not yet come, but it is to come, when it ariseth, out of the bottomless pit, in order to go thither against in, again into endless perdition. And if this be once granted, then that will naturally follow which I am to represent as another proposition. Sixth Proposition the seven kings represented by the seven heads of the beast are no other than the seven forms of supreme government that did successively obtain among the Romans. This the angel doth likewise sufficiently insinuate in Revelation 17 verse 10, which can never be understood of particular emperors, at least not of those grotius fixed upon, whose opinion this way we have already refuted. And therefore, Seeing five of the forms of the Roman government were fallen in John's time, that is, kings, consuls, dictators, decemvirs, and military tribunes, as Tacitus reckons them, and seeing the imperial authority was that which was in being then, we have no reason to quit so plain and exact an interpretation until more be said against it than ever has been yet produ produced to the world. And were it not that I am confined so much now, both as to time, and lest this postscript should swell to an enormous bulk, I should not fear to attempt the demonstration of these last propositions, and to proceed to others that would lay a further and more strong foundation still of that method of interpreting the revelation which the ger generality of Protestants are agreed in. But I hope I have said enough for this place to secure the principles I go upon, by which the things which I proposed at first, as postulata, are, I think, sufficiently proved. And seeing my principal design in writing this postscript was to refute the hypotheses that Grotius and Hammond go upon, I leave it to the candid and impartial thoughts of the reader whether I have not said enough to prove it to be altogether precarious. And now, seeing everyone must see how much I have been straightened, both as to time and paper in this postscript, I hope the reader will pass the more favorable construction on what defects he may observe in my performance, either as to matter, method, or the calculations of time which I have run upon, in which, if there be anything obscure or confused, the study of brevity and dispatch have occasioned it. But since I have advanced nothing in relation, in relation to future time, but by way of conjecture, nor indeed asserted anything in relation to that part of the prophecy which is fulfilled dogmatically and positively, but only proposed my thoughts after the manner of a rational probability, I suppose no man will think it worth his while to make a noise about little mistakes that perhaps I have been guilty of through haste or inadvertency. But if any person shall take occasion from what I have said to study the Apocalypse to better advantage than I have attained to do, 
and shall give the world a better built and more clearly connected scheme of the visions of this book, I assure him that none shall rejoice more in such a performance than I, and I shall be one of the first to return him thanks for refuting me. For truth is all I seek after, and that it may ever, and in all respects prevail, is, and shall be, my constant prayer and study. Thus concludes the postscript from A Discourse Concerning the Rise and Fall of Papacy by Robert Fleming. The following is a memoir of the author, Mr. Robert Fleming, Jr., by Reverend Thomas Thompson. This memoir is included in the book Rise and Fall of Papacy by Robert Fleming. As the two eminent individuals who bore the name of Robert Fleming have been often mistaken for one and the same person, we shall briefly state a few particulars respecting the father before we proceed to the memoir of his son, the author of The Rise and Fall of Papacy. Mr. Robert Fleming Sr., was born at Yester in East Lothian, of which parish his father was minister, A.D. 1630. After having received the elements of a liberal and learned education, he studied with a view to the ministry at the universities of Edinburgh and St. Andrews, and in his 23rd year he was inducted to the charge of the parish of Cambuslang. Here he remained but for a few years, for in consequence of the passing of the Glasgow Act he was ejected along with 400 of the best ministers of Scotland who refused to prostrate the liberties of the Church beneath the feet of civil power. In consequence of this act and the persecutions that followed, in which Fleming was a sharer, he found himself compelled to take shelter in London, from which he was afterwards invited to the second pastoral charge of the Scots Church at Rotterdam, a call which he gladly accepted. In this place he discharged the duties of a faithful, able, and zealous minister, and also wrote several distinguished works, the chief of which, entitled The Fulfilling of the Scripture, was highly prized by our fathers, and frequently referred to by the most eminent theological writers at the close of the 17th and a great portion of the 18th century. He also occasionally repaired to London after the accession of William III, where his learning and piety ensured him an affectionate welcome from the most eminent in the religious world. It was in one of these visits in 1694 that he was attacked with his last illness, and after a short struggle he expired at the age of 64. The exact period of the birth of Robert Fleming, Jr., author of the work here read, cannot now be ascertained. It appears, however, that he was born at Cambuslang during the short incumbency of his father there, and that on the ejection of the latter, Robert, who must still have been in mere boyhood, if not absolute infancy, composed one of a young family of seven children who were thus bereaved of paternal care and thrown upon the wide world. But that gracious and heavenly Father, for whose cause all this destitution had been incurred, did not suffer them to want, but on the contrary provided them with every comfort that was fitting for them. On the settlement of their parent in Holland, Robert and the rest of the family, who some time previous had been deprived of their mother by death, repaired to Rotterdam. Whatever education Robert had received before this period must have been of a desultory character and liable to many interruptions. But in a mind of such an active and inquiring disposition, it generally happens that such obstacles, so far from impeding, only nerve for stronger and more successful efforts. After having been again settled under paternal superintendence, he continued his studies with redoubled ardor and with the purpose of devoting them to the work of the ministry. Of his diligence indeed in preliminary studies, and the proficiency he made in classical and biblical learning, there are ample proofs, 
not only in the general tenor of his afterlife, but the writings he bequeathed to posterity. Of the solemn view which he took of the responsibility of the ministerial work, and the nature of the preparation required for it, he has given us a copious and interesting account in the preface to his learned work entitled Christology. When I had passed, he says, the ordinary course of school and academical studies, and had resolved to devote my life wholly to the study of divinity, with the joint approbation of my friends and teachers, I thought it my duty to bind myself by a solemn resolution before God to prosecute that sacred work with the utmost intention of mind, divesting myself as far as possible, as far as possibly I could, from all prejudices arising either from education, party, or interest. And I have reason to thank God that, while I was very young, my overhearing my father solemnly declare to some particular friends that he had all along acted thus, did leave such an impression on my mind that I took up this resolution very early, though not so solemnly as afterwards, when time and experience had further ripened and improved my reason. The resolution thus adopted, Fleming pursued with extraordinary diligence both at the University of Leiden and that of Utrecht. His fellow students were content to use the lectures of the professors and digest compends of theology. He, on the contrary, procured the books that had been written both for and against controverted points and cases. He would not decide without hearing both sides of the question and in their own words. This bold experiment, however, was not without its disadvantages. I must own, he says, that I was frequently nonplussed and rendered pendulous and doubtful what to think and believe in several cases. I lamented my own weakness and want of acuteness and penetration in comparison of others who were as confident in their opinion as the most difficult things in their opinions of the most difficult things as if they had been the most facile. He comforted himself, however, in the thought that by the wider range of study which he had adopted, he had learned more thoroughly the sentiments of those who differed in opinion from himself and had acquired towards them a more enlarged charity. After having thus studied the controversies of the day, he turned to the classical writers, the philosophers of the heathen world and the fathers of the Christian church. These he examined successively with great diligence and care, and perceiving that the patristic writings did not depend wholly upon the scriptures for illustration, but reverted often to, to traditional sources, he fell back upon the Jewish and rabbinical literature that he might verify them as the fountainhead. Thus, having plodded through the whole round of literature and scholastic theology, with a reference to its highest and most legitimate application, having weighed its worth and ascertained its tendencies, and having, above all, imbibed that spirit of love and charity which he was so desirous to cultivate, he finally returned with redoubled affection to that source of light and wisdom in which alone the inquiring soul can be at rest and the most capacious intellect be filled to overflowing. His language on this subject is full of interest and meaning. Quote, but when I had taken all this pains and run round in this mental survey of learning, I began not only to tire and grow uneasy, but disrelish and in some sort nauseate all human writings. I found that there was no end in reading as well as in writing books, and that much study was a weariness to the flesh. Nay, that vanity and vexation of spirit were themselves entailed upon this, as well as upon all other things that the children of Adam busied themselves about. I resolved, therefore, to betake myself for the future to the study of the sacred volume alone as my main business, and to make no other use of and to make no other use of other books than as they might become subservient to me in the understanding and improvement of the same. For I may say truly with David that I easily see the end of all human perfection, but that the law of God was exceeding broad, as appearing still greater and greater the more it was searched into and understood. End of quote. After Fleming had thus studied and investigated and finally returned exclusively to the source of all light and charity, he was privately ordained in Rotterdam, but without being set apart over any particular charge, in 1688 
by several ministers of the Church of Scotland, at that time refugees in Holland. He soon after repaired to England as domestic chaplain to a private family, where he remained about four years, still cultivating assiduously his theological studies. And there also he published several poetical productions, which have shared the fate of many of their contemporaries, being now rarely found and seldom or never adverted to. At length, on having once more visited Holland, he received in 1692 an invitation from the English Presbyterian Church at Leiden to become their minister, with which he complied. Here he became so highly endeared to his people that when, in consequence of the death of his excellent father in 1694, he was invited by the Presbyterian Church at Rotterdam to succeed their deceased pastor, his own congregation earnestly deprecated his removal. Much and earnest remonstrance between the two churches was the consequence so that he was not admitted to the charge at Rotterdam until the commencement of the following year. To console his afflicted flock at Leiden, he promised to them at his departure to return and preach frequently among them, and also to dispense the sacrament to them every quarter, a promise which he sacredly fulfilled until the settlement of a regular minister there made his further labors unnecessary. It might have been expected that a translation effected with so much difficulty and reluctance would have precluded the pain of a second and that Fleming would have been suffered to remain in the highly important charge which he held at Rotterdam, but such did not long continue to be the case. He had been little more than three years in that place, during which the congregation had greatly increased, and their means of comfort and respectability been greatly augmented, when a plan was in agitation to have him removed to London. A Scottish congregation had been for a long time established at Founders Hall, Lothbury, whose minister, the Reverend Nicholas Blakey, had become, become unfit from age and debility to discharge his pastoral duties. On this occasion, they anxiously inquired for a successor, and both minister and people fixed their choice upon Mr. Robert Fleming. It is said also that this harmonious application of two parties so greatly interested in the event was backed by the powerful interest of a third, even that of William himself, who had now sat nine years on the throne of Britain. It has been added, moreover, that the king, while Prince of Orange, had been personally cognizant of Fleming's learnings, talents, and worth, and wished to secure them for the country over which he now ruled. At length, the call of the Presbyterian Church in Lothbury, after much discussion, was accepted, and Fleming became their minister in the middle of 1698. After this period, his life was the calm and even tenor of a diligent, laborious student and faithful divine. Although so repeatedly translated, he was no ambitious place-hunter, and instead of availing himself either of the high interest he possessed or the invitations he received, received to more exalted situations in the church, he contented himself with the humble charge of a chapel and the lowly position of a dissenter. An allusion to what he might have been is contained in the dedication to this work, being the rise and fall of the papacy. To be principal of the University of Glasgow was no mean temptation for one so devoted to literature. The mace of office was placed before him, upon which he had only to lay his hand, and he refused. But even in the obscure retirement of Lothbury, his merits were not hid. On the contrary, his profound and varied learning was appreciated by universities and distinguished literary individuals, both at home and abroad, while the two highest personages of the realm, the king and the archbishop of Canterbury, honored him with their, with their acquaintanceship. His majesty, we are told, frequently consulted him on the management of Scottish affairs, but such was the modesty of the presbyter that these interviews, at his own earnest request, were always conducted in secrecy. The latter days of this excellent divine were clouded with sorrow on account of the unsettled state of public affairs and the dangers with which the Protestantism of the country was menaced. 
The selfish intrigues of the courtiers, alternately to advance or thwart the establishment of the House of Hanover, according to the predominance of their own personal interests, the unscrupulous machinations of popish emissaries, the growing ascendancy of the Romish, Romish superstition, and the risk of a popish successor with which the throne was incessantly threatened, these melancholy prospects, constantly before him for years, preyed upon his gentle spirit and delicate constitution and finally hurried him to the grave. He died in London in May 24, 1716. It was amidst these despondent feelings and intense anxieties that Fleming published his discourse on the rise and fall of the papacy. At this time, the power of France was at its height, and William III was maintaining against it what appeared to all but himself a most unsuccessful and hopeless struggle, while his most secret plans and measures were hourly sold by his servants to the courts of Paris and Saint-Germain. It was even then that Fleming, studying the interpretation of prophecy in a conscientious and modest spirit, believed that he beheld, in the pouring out of the fourth vial, the destruction of the French monarchy and the fearful events with which it was to be accompanied. And how were these conjectures and guesses, as he so diffidently terms them, received? We have no means of learning the amount of attention they obtained, or the degree of faith with which they were regarded. Perhaps, indeed, they were considered the fond reveries of a dreamer, a dreamer yearning for the accomplishment of events which, however desirable in themselves, were yet of all the most unlikely or even impossible. But time rolled on until nearly a century afterward, when these astounding pr- predictions were fulfilled to the letter. The French monarchy was indeed extinguished in a fire of revolutionary principles after, by its support of America, it had scorched the regal dominion of Britain. It was in the commencement of 1793, when the horrors of the revolution were at the wildest and when Louis XVI was about to perish ignominiously upon the scaffold, that Fleming's improbable predictions, written nearly a hundred years before, were recalled to memory and brought before public attention, not only by extracts published in newspapers, but reprints of the work itself, both in England and America. The sensation they produced was deep, thrilling, and universal, and it is even alleged that they constituted a powerful dissuasive under the management of the Liberal Party against the fatal war into which Britain was about to enter with Republican France. After these wars had passed away, the warning volume was laid aside, as if the emergency had passed and nothing more were needed. But was this a wise indifference? Mighty and more fearful apocalyptical events are yet to be fulfilled than French revolutions, and we stand in the midst of these events. A more tremendous nightmare is gathering upon the soul of man to blight its hopes and wither its energies than ever yet emanated from Bourbon tyranny and French ambition and it becomes us to ascertain by every means the full nature of the melancholy present or the still more appalling future. Here, then, is the question. May not that wise and dispassionate expositor, who so strangely and minutely solved a mystery which no other expositor had even hoped for, may not he, too, be equally correct, in some cases at least, respecting those great events which still remain to be fulfilled? Is not the emergency in which we now live at all events worth the trouble of a research? What study and inquiry can be too great that would even dimly or distortedly throw forward the shadows of coming trials that by ascertaining their character we might be prepared for their approach? With these these questions we commend the reader to a most heedful perusal of the following exposition. Reader's note. The following was added two years later. When the foregoing pages were written more than two years ago, how little was the closing warning deemed necessary at such a period? Everywhere there was peace and the promise of prosperity, and the great care of nations as well as individuals was to sow and reap, to buy and sell, while the language of them all was that of the doomed city, 
I shall see no sorrow. But the king of kings had otherwise decreed it, and therefore all was quickly changed. He breathed upon the earth, and its abundance withered, and with want came discontent and the love of change. France rose and accomplished in a few hours what seemed to have been the work of centuries, and the eyes of Europe became giddy as they looked upon the rapid whirl of that stupendous revolution. But France, the greatest of political powers, could not thus convert herself into a maelstrom without involving more or less the other powers of Europe if it did not absorb them into the vortex. Weeks, a very few weeks, the whole position and aspect of the nation is altered. The oppressed countries of Italy and Poland hail the example and struggle for deliverance. While the nations that oppress them are banded equally against the emancipated and their instructors. But even this source of a European war, more direful in its prospects than any that have preceded, is not the worst. Nation is not only arrayed against nation, but divided against itself, and the sword is drawn as relentlessly by the people against their own ancient dynasties and time-honored aristocracies as against those foreign and hereditary antagonists whom they are armed to oppose. Little did men dream at the commencement of this year, of which so little has yet elapsed, what great political changes were to make 1848 so important and so astounding an era in history. One man predicted it, but he had died nearly a century and a half ago, so that he had almost fallen out of remembrance. People were startled indeed when they found how exactly his prediction of the downfall of the French monarchy was verified by the event. But when their wonderment ceased, they thought it was but an accident, a random guess which mere chance had accomplished. But his further expositions of the apocalypse respecting the events of the present day and under which we alternately tremble with apprehension or writhe with anguish, will compel us, even for very selfishness, to awake. Whither, we will ask, do these events tend? What will be the period of their termination? What, in the meantime, will be their effect upon the kingdoms of the earth and upon ourselves? The year 1848 is with Fleming a year fraught according to his interpretation a prophetic writ, with events of all-absorbing importance. Speaking of Italy, he says, quote, The fifth vial, which is to be poured out on the seed of the beast, or the dominions that more immediately belong to and depend upon the Roman sea, that, I say, this judgment will begin, probably begin about the year 1794 and expire about the year 1848. End of quote. How this accurate calculation has been verified, we know. The attempt to wrest Italy from Austria, which commenced on the part of France in the very year specified, inflicted such an outpouring of calamity upon the devoted land as could only be exceeded by the crushing despotism of Austria when she recovered the dominion. It is worthy of remark, too, that under the anguish of this fifth vial, the people gnawed their tongues for pain, an expression not used elsewhere. And where was there a people more lively and loquacious and yet so completely gagged into silence as the Italians? They dared not murmur. Such was the will of their Austrian lords, and the prohibition maddened them into frenzy. Into frenzy. It is added they repented not of their deeds. And it is notorious that in Italy, during these terrible inflections, the souls of the people were untouched. The papists seemed to become more besotted, the infidels more unbelieving and heaven-defying, the profligate more sensual and luxurious than ever. But in 1848, the year in which, as Fleming interpreted, this judgment was to expire, the numerous standards of Italy have one by one been rising into the air, and even already the song of deliverance begins to be heard. It is not, however, merely the political liberation of Italy which he anticipates as commencing in 1848. It is, as he firmly believes, the commencement also of the downfall of the papal power, not rapid and sudden, as some have fondly imagined, but by gradual through sure progression. Quote, we are not to imagine, he says, 
But this vial will totally destroy the papacy, though it will exceedingly weaken it, for we find this still in being and alive when the next vial is poured out. End of quote. From 1848 to 2000, a period of 152 years, he contemplates as the interval between the decay and the destruction of Antichrist and the deliverance of the people of God, the reign of the glorious millennium. And who can wonder that, for the accomplishment of an event the most important that ever history has recorded, there should be revolutions and changes during that interval, such as statesmen have never calculated? Alas! What can they do if their only textbook is that of Adam Smith or Jeremy Bentham? If they would but take their lessons of controlling these events from the same volume that predicted them. And a later note. We had marked some other striking coincidences to bring forward in this short prefatory notice. But on serious consideration, it was thought that such a process would too much forestall the meditation and inquiry of the reader. To his most careful perusal, this volume is again recommended, speaking of the volume, The Rise and Fall of Papacy, for it speaks of events by which he is now surrounded and of which his children shall reap the fruits. End of the reading. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at area code 780-450-3730 by fax at area code 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, Alberta, Canada T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalogue.